Lord, thank you for the songs we've already sung today about your goodness, your faithfulness, your promises, your love. Today again we look at this topic of the covenant of grace, which is what wraps up all of those things together. You have covenanted grace towards us from eternity. Help us as we consider scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you ready? Got a Bible? Got a notebook? Got a phone with scripture open? Find Genesis 6, we'll be getting there in a minute. I'm going through to Genesis 9. We started last time with Adam and Eve and how God's covenant of grace preceded the fall. Scripture points to his covenant of grace as being made and formed before he made the world. He loved us, he chose us in Christ. He appointed Jesus to be the Savior before he made the world. That's before Genesis 1, let alone Genesis 3. His covenant unfolds over time as he takes first one covenant partner, then another, and he, through them and and over time, reveals more grace and truth, more about himself, more of his love, more of his faithfulness, until everything is fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Messiah. In every age, people have been saved by grace through faith. Not invented in the New Covenant. Abraham was justified by faith. He was saved by grace through faith. Noah was saved by grace through faith. Because they looked forward to the Messiah who was to come. The Lamb who would come and be slain. We now look back at the cross and at Jesus who died, was buried and rose again. So, between... Adam and Noah, two lines of humanity are listed and developed. I'm not talking about Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. I'm talking about the descendants of Cain, who was, of course, the murderer who killed his brother Abel, and those of the third son of Adam and Eve, Seth. The first lot, the Canaanites, the Cainites, not Canaanites, Cainites, were ungodly. They were just called men or the sons of men. But the descendants of Seth have this label attached to them, the sons of God. You can see the names there. It's probably a bit too small to read from the back. Cain going down to Enoch. Interestingly, some of these names jump over from one side to the other. There's something rather wicked about that, I think. All right? Um, in Genesis 4:23, we come across a descendant of, of, of uh, Cain called Lamech. There's a descendant of Seth called Lamech as well, but anyway. Lamech not only takes two wives, which was naughty and unusual at the time. He even seems to defy the Lord by declaring to his wives that he killed a young man in a fight. And then he boasts that if my forefather Cain deserved seven times punishment, then I deserve 70 times seven or 77 times or something like that. Why was he boasting to his wives? Maybe it was to make them afraid. Do you know what kind of man I am? Do you know who you're dealing with? In contrast to the sons of Cain, the sons of Seth, it says in Genesis 4.26, are those who began to call on the name of the Lord. And this godly line of Seth includes a man called Enoch, who at an age of only 300 years or so, you might think that's a long time, but not in those days. That was about a third of a lifetime. You calculate a third of a modern lifetime. Enoch walked with God, and one day he walked out. He never came back. God took him home. How unusual was that? But... He walked with God. That statement, by the way, is repeated in Hebrews 11 about those people who had faith in the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant times. 
Genesis 6 tells us that these two lines of humanity, the godly line and the ungodly line, began to intermarry. Okay? So if you've got your Bible, Genesis 6, verse 1. Now when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now I know some people, Jewish legends, talk about this being angels who fancy human women and, and so seduce them or whatever else. I do not take that view. Neither did most of the reformers and so on, and Augustine before them. I see this as being the sons of God being the godly line, daughters of men being coming from the ungodly line. They saw they were beautiful and they took as wives. Notice that's wives, not seducing, raping. That's wives. These were marriages. They took as wives whomever they chose. So the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for his mortal, his days shall be 120 years. Now, that's a double-edged thing. God was setting a time, time zone of, of 120 years before he was going to destroy the earth. Interestingly, though, our human bodies time out at about 120 years. We can't survive much longer than that, no matter how much health care we get. You know? So that's an interesting thing. The Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and afterward as well, when the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men, and they bore them children who became the mighty men of old, men of renown. So the godly line of Seth, of Enoch and Noah, was being corrupted. Evil was increasing on the earth. The Nephilim, or giants, may have been simply oversized men. They appeared again after Genesis 6, because they're listed in Numbers 13, when the spies go into Israel. We, we saw the giants there, we saw the Nephilim. Listen, giantism is a genetic variation of humanity. All right? It happens. But these men were also powerful men. They exerted influence of them. They were mighty men of renown. All right? In other words, they began to lord it over people. Now, that's a criticism, not a, con not, not a con commendation. And then Genesis 6 makes more double statements. It says... The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was altogether evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart and the Lord regretted he'd made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created with the face of the earth, every man and beast and crawling creature and bird of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Now, when in Hebrew scripture there are double statements, it's for emphasis. When there's a treble, it's like, you know what that is. We do that ourselves, don't we? We don't say yes, we go, yes, yes. Or if we want to really stop somebody doing something, we say, no, no, no. We emphasize by repetition. Scripture, God, three times it says, was grieved in his heart that he had made men. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is the word there. I don't know why they pronounce it, translate the favor sometimes. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was rightly related to God and rightly related to people. He was doing the right thing in the eyes of God. He was blameless in his generation. doesn't mean he was perfect. We know that from later on. Right? But he was doing well within his generation, just as Lot did well in Sodom. Lot, Lot wasn't a perfect man, but he did well in a bad situation. Noah walked with God. Who else did? One of his forefathers called Enoch. Maybe Seth. Adam, and, until he was expelled from the garden. 
walked with God. What, what does walk with God mean? It's a way of life, a life lived openly under the gaze of God, humbly under the hand of God, attentive to the voice of God, and confident in the goodness of God. And it also this walking with God pictures a conversations, a series of conversations happening between the Lord and his friend. The Lord chose Noah in grace and showed him grace. Uh, and uh, so we read often in the New Testament that Abraham was counted as righteous through faith, but so was Noah. It says the same thing. Hebrews 11, by the way, watch out for what verse we finished on today. Quoted earlier, <laughs> quoted yesterday. <laughs> Colin and, uh, Colin and uh, Chenonso beat me to it. Hebrews 4, we'll come to that at the end. Okay. We read often in Testament about Abraham, but it says in Hebrews 11, Noah, by faith, was warned about things not yet seen, and in godly fear built an ark to save his family. By faith he contemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He was an heir of it. He was going to inherit this faith righteousness by faith. Things not yet seen included the flood, but some say, because it says in, in, in Genesis 2 that there was no rain uh, in, in, the, in the original creation, but the, there was a mist that covered the land, and maybe there was a canopy across the earth that made it more like a whole big greenhouse at that time. Um, that they, that it was rain too that was coming, yet unseen. There was tension between the sons of men and the sons of God. There was tension between Noah and his unbelieving generation. That tension continues to this day. Jesus spoke about it. 1 John talks about it. We live in the world, but not of the world. Jesus said the world will hate you. You know? They're not going to be nice to you sometimes. They're going to turn against you because you belong to me. The children of God cannot be the same as the unbelieving world. We shouldn't marry unbelievers. It's like mixing light with darkness. Read the scriptures. You'll find this theme runs through the Bible from beginning to the end. If we live and speak and, 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 and worship Jesus, the world may very well hate us. The more we live in the grace of God, the more the world is shown up for its, 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 its desperate lostness, its slavery to sin, its fear of death. It's exposed by light. Darkness is exposed by light. Genesis 6 says that the, the corruption of man corrupted nature. Now the earth was, was corrupt in the sight of God and full of violence. And God looked upon the earth and saw that it was corrupt. Every living creature on the earth had corrupted their ways. People talked about, oh, these creatures do things that human beings do. Yes, we corrupted them by our fall. Our fall was, was creation's fall. You can read that in Romans 8 as well. Then God says to Noah, he's going to bring judgment on the earth. I haven't put lots of scriptures up now. I'm just going to read them to you. God says to Noah, look, I'm going to bring flood waters upon the earth to destroy every creature under the heavens that has the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish. I will establish my covenant with you. That's not make a new one. That's reaffirm one that already exists. The language there is very specific. God is not, I'll make a new covenant with you. No, it's not a new one. The only new one is the one that comes in Jesus. I'm going to reaffirm the one that's already here. I'm showing you grace, and my covenant of grace is going to be reaffirmed with you. What's God doing with, with Noah? Noah is a second Adam. God could have wiped out all humanity and started completely all over again, but he, made, he chose Noah and his family, and Noah was a second Adam for a restart of humanity. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So scripture is very clear here. Other than the human and land animals, 
in the ark. Of course, aquatic creatures didn't have a problem in the flood. The flood would destroy all living creatures on earth. And I believe that's where geological deposits and fossils come from. Notice that before Noah and his family enter the ark, the Lord promises he will establish his covenant with them. And he speaks to them again when the flood is over. So then the flood came. Building the ark took the whole of the 120 years the Lord has set as the countdown for humanity. The trees Noah cut down to start the ark were probably later on when he was finishing the ark, he was cutting down trees. There were seeds left from that one. It took that long. During that time, Scripture says, New Testament says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness to a generation while God was waiting great patiently while the ark was being built. One way of understanding what Peter says there in, in 1 Peter 3 is that God, uh, Jesus was through the Holy Spirit preaching through Noah to that generation. Now, forgive me, I'm going to be a bit silly for a minute because I imagine this conversation between some of Noah's neighbors and Noah. Okay. Now, forget all the movies, all right? Forget all the Noah movies. You know? But I don't think this is going too far from the truth. Now, I need to put on a silly voice for this one, so not to offend anybody. I'll do the one I grew up in. Is that okay? <laughs> West Midlands. What you doing, Noah? What you got all those trees down for? I'm building a, a, a big box. Big box? What you going to put in it? Put in it? Well, whoever wants to get in it, and, and living creatures, because we've got to be in there to be saved from the flood. What's the flood? It's, it's when water rises up to the earth and, and rain falls from the sky. What's rain? You're having me on, aren't you? Anyway, why, why is it going to flood? Well, you see, God's really, really fed up with our wickedness, our corruption. Wickedness and corruption. Are you telling me I'm wicked? Who do you think you are, Noah? And so it went on for 120 years. Peter mentions Noah and the ark and the flood in both of his epistles, drawing a comparison and contrast between the Lord's day of judgment then by water and fire, which is yet to come. At the end of the 120 years, the ark was completed. I'm short-lining this for you. We haven't time to go into all the details. And Noah, his family, and breeding pairs of all the non-aquatic creatures entered the ark. That process of entering took seven days, and God told them it would take seven days. Scripture says that when the seven days were finished, the Lord then closed the door on them. Noah and his family are inside. And by the way, I, I have a suspicion that the door was closed not at the end of the day, but earlier on in the day. And, son, and for the next few hours, nothing happened. I kind of feel that that's what God does that sometimes you know it's like okay there are moments when you're thinking do I stop trusting is it true is this real yeah is it going to happen I think there were at least a few hours when it was like that and people were probably standing around inside going go on then what is it flood eh listen to the words of Jesus just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It would be the same in the, as in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It would be just like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. See, the Genesis account 
emphasizes the wickedness of that generation. They were corrupt. There was a mingling between this godly line and ungodly line. Jesus doesn't point to their ungodly. I've heard preachers try to say, oh, these wicked people. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. And I'm thinking, what's the matter with that? Is there anything wrong with eating and drinking and having a wedding? No. No. What Jesus is pointing to is, he's adding something to the record of Genesis. They were wicked, but they were also just getting on with normal life. What are you doing today? I'm going to a wedding. What are you doing today? We're having friends around for dinner. Jesus points to their apathy and comfort. If you're days, even hours, away from drowning, there might be more important things to consider than eating and drinking and having a wedding day. Both great wickedness and comfort and complacency were features of those days and will be features of these days and the last days before Jesus returns. You don't have to be a criminal to be condemned by God's day of judgment. Just keep following appetites and amusements and apathy and that will condemn anybody perfectly well too. So Noah's generation saw the ark filled with its living cargo and the door was shut and after that, somewhere before the end of that day, the rain came. For 120 years, they'd resisted and rejected Noah. Even on the day when the ark was full, they perhaps thought that Noah would be proved wrong and give up and leave before sundown. But that day, probably towards the end of that day, the rain started falling. The springs of the earth opened up and the flood waters started rising. We can imagine that over through that night and through to the next day, as the ark floats off, people are making for higher ground and then higher again. But after some days... There's nothing to be seen but waves. Every part of the earth is covered to a certain depth. Every breathing thing died. The scripture tells us that the flood increased for 150 days, then decreased for 150 days, and after that the earth dried out for 70 days before Noah and his family left the ark. So altogether, Noah and his family and that cargo of living creatures, called it Noah's Zoo if you like, spent over a year in the ark. Here's now where Noah leaves the ark and God affirms his promise, his covenant. Covenant has a number of things attached to it. First of all, it's a relationship that God makes. It's, 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 not, it's not always unilateral and unconditional, but it's very top-sided in that God is the one making the covenant very definitely. There are promises or oaths connected with the covenant, and in serious covenants, blood is shed as a sign of the covenant too. How many of you know that that all adds up to Jesus? Yeah? Okay. So remember that at this time, Noah is the head of the human race now. He's the patriarch of a very small family, but that's all the human family there is. And the second Adam, Adam and covenant part of the Lord makes Noah promises and gives him instructions. He has covenant responsibilities and obligations. And because this is the... This is now the next, this is the restart. This is the only human family. This covenant is with all humankind. All all creation and all humanity because we were there in Noah receiving this. So Noah built an altar to the Lord and 
took from every kind of animal, clean animal, bird. He offered burnt sacrifices on the old bird offerings. Sorry. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth, and this is poetry, this bit, as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. That's a very precious promise. You know, at any point in the world, there's enough food in the world. It just doesn't get to the people who need to eat it. We might go and buy our food, whether meat, vegetables, fruit, bread, cereal, from the supermarket, but someone out there grows the stuff. You might not be a farmer, but you're paying farmers to grow your food. And whether they acknowledge it or not, we acknowledge God provides through his wonderful creation and through this wonderful promise, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. This side of the new creation. Then there's some conditions for Noah as well, the instructions. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, now listen to this, do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, subdue it. Listen to this. God says to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on every living creature on earth. Every bird of the air, every creature that crawls on the ground, all the fish that are in the sea, they will be delivered into your hand. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as like, now this isn't food laws yet. This is you can eat anything you like. Just as I gave you the green plants, it, I now give you all things. But you must not eat meat with its lifeblood it's still in it. Surely I will require the, the life of any man or beast by whose hand your lifeblood is shed. I will demand an accounting for anyone who takes the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. For in his own image God made mankind. As for you, God repeats his blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread out across the earth and multiply upon it. All life is a gift from God. There are two instructions given here to, 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 add to Noah. Don't eat meat with the blood in it. It seems that while probably they started as vegans or vegetarians in the Garden of Eden, eating meat here, acknowledge you can eat meat, yes. But when we eat meat, we acknowledge we've taken a life for our food. So in, in those days, it was pouring out the blood saying, you're acknowledging I am shedding this life of this creature so that we can eat this creature. When the Puritans said grace at a meal table, 1600s, 1700s, great Christians in, the, in England, they would say, we thank thee, O God, for the life of these thy creatures thou hast given for our, for our, for our repast. Repast is an old kind of word, isn't it? Thank, we thank you for the life of these creatures you've given for our food. That's an acknowledgement. All life comes from God. Interestingly, when you get to the law of Moses, how we treat our livestock and handle the life and death of our livestock is an important issue to God. Then do not shed the blood of a human. Now that starts before murder. That starts with violence. Notice that in the law of God later on, it says if you, if you put out someone's eye, you're going to have your eye taken out, or you're going to have to pay the appropriate price not to have it taken out. You know, The damage done to, to a person should be done to the damager. The person who murders should be murdered. Now, that I believe is God's just way. However, when the law of God came in through Moses, you, you only executed someone on the eyewitness testimony of at least two, if not three, witnesses. Two or three eyewitnesses 
that this violence or this murder took place. We do not have a justice system that demands that, that high level of testimony and, and evidence. Therefore, our justice system is not fit for purpose for executing people, and neither, I'll say it here, is the American system either. All right? We, our, we cannot trust our justice systems, our justice systems to, to handle capital punishment, but that's what God ordered. We're accountable to the Lord for our life, for the lives and well-being of others, for the lives of those animals who use and kill and eat. In fact, killing other than for to eat or to protect, let's say, is foreign here. To be just a hunter bagging another shot or whatever is foreign to this covenant. Think about it. Two principles of life that come up again in the Lord Moses. Then God repeats his promise. Sorry, come back. I haven't given the scriptures. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I have now established my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Notice, are you a descendant of Noah? Do you believe the Bible? Yeah, you're a descendant of Noah, or one of his three sons and their wife. And every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the beasts of the earth, every living creature that came out of the ark, I established my covenant with you. And notice this, he's establishing his covenant with human beings and with creation with living beings. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. You notice in this that I'm taking the Bible very seriously, that uh, the Lord here says that he destroyed, that by that flood, every other human being and every other living, breathing creature was destroyed. Therefore, this flood had to be wide enough to destroy all human beings on the earth and all creatures that breathe on the earth at that time. This covenant is made with all humanity. Then God gives the sign of the covenant, which is, we say, a rainbow. Yeah? Let me read it to you. God said, this is, we're in Genesis 9, verse 12, by the way, now. <laughs> Come a long way through. Genesis 9, verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with your covenant for all generations to come. Now, almost every Bible has this word rainbow here. It's a simple word there. It's keshet. Hebrew means bow. We know a rainbow, but God just says bow. I have hung my bow in the clouds. God's put his war bow, his hunting bow, up on the sky. I'm not going to hunt you to death with floods anymore. By the way, that's another reason why the flood was universal, because floods, local floods kill people every year somewhere in the world. So if, if it's a local flood, God's break his promise. I don't accept that. I've formed the clouds and the rainbow will appear. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, the whole earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, <clears throat> I'll remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. That's the promise. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. So God says again to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and every creature on the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of hay fever. So the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant of grace, including his creation, including creatures. God hung his hunting bow up. He wouldn't destroy us wholesale again. Rain would not be his judgment weapon, but rather a blessing upon the earth and bring growth and harvest. So when the rain is ending, it's usually when it's ending, isn't it? 
and the, the sun is shining in the right direction the, through the watery atmosphere, we see the sign of God's covenant. Of course, that rainbow sign and the colors of the rainbow have now been used in all sorts of ways. Oh, my word. The purpose and value of that sign has not only been diminished, but degraded and dishonored. It seems to me that there's been some devilish design, as if someone asked the question, how corrupt can we make this rainbow sign? It's a sign from God, a sign of his grace, his covenant, his promise. It's a sign to the end of the age when the earth will be again cleansed and renewed, but not by water this time, but by fire. Noah's world was taken away by a flood and a renewed earth appeared. Our world will be swept clean by the fire of God, the God's holy presence, and we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth. So how did this second Adam, this image bearer and covenant partner work out? Well, Noah wasn't perfect. He was a farmer, of course, and he, in the renewed world, he planted a vineyard, made wine, got drunk, and lay on his bed naked. One of his sons went in there, came out and said, you know what I've seen in there? The old man. He snitched to his brothers, but they put a cloak or something on their shoulders and walked backwards and dropped it on him, so he was covered up. Noah was a poor example to his sons, and one of his sons was already showing a lot of poor character. Noah's family grew over the next generations, and it seems that soon there was a leader among the human tribes again at that time. Another mighty man, Nimrod, mentioned in, nine, in chapter Genesis 10. Let me read that with a few additions to the text. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who began to be a mighty one, a fearless leader on the earth. He was a mighty hunter in defiance of the Lord. Interestingly, he was living down in a place called Shinar. And in Genesis 11, in Shinar, they build a a, a tower to reach up to God and make a name for themselves. Guess who was probably in charge of the tower building? The guy called Nimrod. So humankind went back to their ways, but God has promised I'm not going to destroy them again. That's the restart. There won't be another one. So the sons of God, a righteous remnant preserved from judgment and death, soon became a humanity that built a tower to show their own face off against God. God confused their speech. They babbled. They spoke in different languages, and God scattered them. So now the restart of the family of God as image bearers, children of God, was not a success. His covenant partners failed to keep his promise. But God's covenant does not fail because of the unfaithfulness of his partners. He is a covenant-keeping God. He never reneges on his covenant. We were singing songs earlier about God's faithfulness and goodness, and I've asked you to if you can sing another one when we've finished and when we break bread. You know, these are covenant songs. When we talk about goodness, it's God's covenant goodness. It's who he has he's revealed himself to us to be. He's not going to break that. He can't change that. He's faithful. His promises are faithful. His oaths are faithful. We, we sing the song, uh, uh, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. My favorite bit of that song this, is this one. His oath, his covenant and blood support me through the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my help and stay. Right? His, his oath, his covenant. It's not how powerful I feel. It's not how hard I can believe. It's his oath, his covenant that I'm trusting in. So beyond Noah, beyond Abraham, who we'll come to next time, Moses and David, we look to Jesus. Let me just talk now about Jesus. 
for a few minutes before we break bread. Jesus and Noah. Our Bible versions, our English Bible versions, are far from literal word-by-word translations because if they did do that, the English would be very clumsy. We'd find it very difficult to follow because the words would be, on the, in our thinking, in the wrong order. All right? I could give you an example, but I'll shake the tongue. English grammar and sentences are different from Hebrew grammar and sentences and from Greek too. But in Genesis chapter 6 to chapter 9, there's something that gets missed out of our Bibles because it's very repetitive, and you think, well, why is it saying it again? Why is it saying it again? Very repetitive. There are many, many more mentions of Noah than we read. And many more times that it says in Noah, with Noah, from Noah, to Noah. The ark went, the, 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 the bird went from Noah and it came back to Noah and he took it in and Noah took it in with, with Noah. And that's the kind of language you use. It's repeated and repeated. Now, you think, well, that is a bit clumsy language. No, it isn't. If you open up Ephesians and go through the first three chapters, what do you read? In Christ, with Christ. We raised in him, with him. The key to being saved in the time of Noah was not just being in the ark. Get it? It was being with Noah. If you rejected Noah, you were lost. How do we get saved? By trusting in Jesus. You need to be in him, with him. Whatever God's salvation looks like in all of its contents and so on, the, the way into the mercy of God, the blessing of God, the goodness of God is one door, Jesus. Jesus. So this is about Jesus being for us what Noah was to them. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and his life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5. And then think about this, Jesus and the, and the rainbow. Let me see if we can do this quickly. You know that the Lord Jesus appeared in the Old Covenant times, different occasions. It calls him an angel, but an angel means messenger, and sometimes he's a messenger with a capital M, it's Jesus himself. Appearing. But he's appearing with elements of Godhead. He's not just a messenger who looks like a man, he's a messenger who looks like God. That has to be the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnation making these appearances. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1, sees such a human figure. He sees the throne of God being moved around by the cherubim and seraphim, and it's all weird and amazing. But then he sees a human figure sitting on the throne, a human figure. And he says that around this human figure, a brilliant light shone around him like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. What's a rainbow a sign of again? The covenant of grace. So even then, the throne of God was surrounded by a rainbow that signals grace is here. Grace is here. In Revelation 10, John sees a similar mighty angel. And he has a crown around his head. Guess what that is? It's a rainbow. Was that just a messenger or was that Jesus, the messenger of God? Angels don't have rainbows around their heads, but Jesus does. When we approach Jesus, we approach the throne of grace. Whether there are other comparisons between Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation we could make as well, but this, this human figure we've seen, and in two versions of it, there's a rainbow around it. So understanding some Bible words, when we talk about God's goodness, God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's love, these are covenant words. 
it is entirely who he is to us. He cannot be anything else to us. For he has promised to be that God. In fact, all of the covenants that were made when we get to uh, the end of Deuteronomy and then to Hebrews and to the New Testament are summed up in this phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God has made you his so that he will be yours. That's the very heart of this covenant of grace. As we come to breaking bread again today. Hebrews 4. <laughs> Let us then approach the throne of grace. It's got a rainbow around it, folks. There's a, there's a human figure sitting on it. You know the name of that figure. You know the name of that person. There's a human figure sitting on the throne of God. And there's a rainbow around that throne of God. And every sign of that entrance there is not just, oh, wow, awesome, wow, wow. It's come, welcome, grace is here. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Breaking bread is a tangible reminder of his covenant, now fully revealed in Jesus. Covenants were made by the oath and promise of God and the, 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 the bringing into relationship of someone to, with God in covenant. And, and in a serious covenant, as we'll see with Abraham, there was bloodshed. as a sign of how serious the covenant was. Jesus' blood is the blood that sealed the new covenant. It cannot be broken. Therefore, as I was reading this morning in John 10, my Father has given me these people and they will never be lost. No one, they will never perish. No one will take them out of my hand because my Father has given to me. My Father is greater than I. And no one can take them out of his hand. My, and my, me, I and my Father are one. We cannot be lost from the hands of Jesus Why? because we're going to be really, really good and really, really hold on tight. No, because it's his promise. It's his oath. It's his covenant. Amen? Amen. Let's break bread together.